All right. Just to give you a bit of a heads up, um, started a three-week series on David and Goliath last week, so this is week two. Next week, we have um, a guest speaker come in to speak from an organization called CAP, which stands for Christians Against Poverty. Um, that is going to be a massive Sunday for us. Uh, I would just really encourage you not to see it as a sideline or something marginal. It's huge. Our big, our, one of our big pushes for this year, this academic year, is opening up a CAP centre, which basically means that we're going to uh, be employing um, Nicola two days a week, who's going to build a team that's going to help us to help those who are crippled by debt. Um, and we won't just bring the good news of freedom from financial debt, we'll also bring the good news of freedom from the debt of sin through Jesus. And we just believe in God's going to open up all kinds of communities for us through that. So next Sunday is really huge and really massive, and we just ask you to have that in the front of your mind and pray into it so that we, have a, uh, we receive all we can from that. And they, the CAP um, uh, company, or every good charity, um, have got some really good speak, speakers, preachers, and they're sending down one of theirs, and he's going to fire our hearts up and God's heart for the poor. So that's next week, and then the following week I'll do the... Am I getting some special effects going here? Yeah, I'm liking that. Okay. Um, next week, and then the following week, we'll, we'll do the last one on this series. So, so it's talking about faith. I want to pray. We need God's help. And then we're going we're gonna to get into the Word of God. So thank you, Lord, for everybody that's made it into this room this morning. No one's here by mistake. We thank you, Lord, you ordain such things. Thank you, Lord, for those that are here that love you and know you, Lord, and are walking with you. I want to pray, Lord, that you would encourage their hearts. You'd stir them. You'd, I pray you'd warm them up, Lord God. I pray, Lord, that there would be gifts of faith given even through the preaching. Lord God, I pray for encouragement and strength to be given. Lord, we pray a blessing on your people. We pray for those here, Lord, who are here, maybe because someone's invited them, or maybe they're just kind of not quite even sure why they're here or where they're at. I want to ask, Lord, for blessing. I want to pray, God, for, for... I thank you that you're a God who loves to do us good. You're a God who loves to change our lives. You're the God of truth. We pray your truth would penetrate right into the depths of people's hearts today for your glory and for our good. Amen. Amen. So we're talking about faith over these three weeks. In a nutshell, what is faith? Faith is taking God seriously. It's really what it is. It's having regard for Him. It's having regard for the things He says, that when He makes promises which are literally packed, this, this book, the Bible, is packed for the promises that God has made. It's trusting that He is faithful, that He cannot lie. In fact, one of my favourite scriptures says it's impossible for God to lie. I mean, it's almost a, you know, when someone says it's impossible for God to, I mean, what are they going to say next? Because you think it's God. You know, how can you say, how could you even suggest that something's impossible for him? But when it says lie, you're like, oh yes, because he's the God of truth. And faith is really taking him seriously, taking what he has said seriously. And faith really gives God the opportunity to display his omnipotence, to display the fact that he has all power. There's a man in the uh, Old Testament called Abraham who was promised a child when he was way... I mean, him and his wife were way beyond childbearing age. They'd never been able to have children. God promises a child. We're told of Abraham in Romans 4, it says this, He didn't weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which is as good as dead, because he was about 100 years old. Or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb, no distrust made him waver concerning the promise of God. But he grew strong in faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do 
what he had promised. There it is. Fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. That is faith. It's a beautiful description there. Faith is about understanding that he is supreme. That he has the last word in every situation. That he has the final authority. That his reach is the most impressive reach. That there is no situation that has somehow gone beyond his reach, but that he can reach into it and redeem it. Faith is being impressed with God. It's, our, it's when our hearts are, are genuinely, uh, we feel like, Do you know what? There's a lot going on and a lot out of my control. And a lot, I don't really know what, where this is going to pan out. But actually, that is not filling my gaze because there is someone much more impressive that is filling my gaze and nothing is beyond his reach. It's faith. It's how faith works. Always surprise him and always impact him. When, you have, when there's genuine faith around, it charges the atmosphere with the presence of God because God loves faith. Hebrews 11 verse 6 says this, Without faith it's impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that, number one, he exists, and number two, he rewards those who seek him. He's out to reward those who seek him earnestly. Where there's faith, there's God. Faith is a creative component to it as well. It, 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 it's a remarkable in that it, it, it sees what could be, because what God has promised. And, and though being utterly realistic and faces the circumstances before us in reality, there is, there is, there is a promise that God has said which is different, different to that. And so what faith does is it takes that and it imposes that on what is before the eyes. It says, that's what I'm going for, that's what I'm going to believe God for. And, it, and through, in that sense, it creates a different reality. Now, obviously, I'm speaking big words here, so you need to make sure that you really know what God has promised and that you're not just in cuckoo land. You know, So you've got to make sure that faith hangs on the fact that God has spoken something first. This is what he wants to do. Once you know he said that, you can be as confident as I'm suggesting today. Living by faith is living by the truth. It's very important you understand that. That the one who created all things and owns all things, his assessment is the right assessment. And his assessment is the assessment to go with. His assessment is the assessment to believe. What he says is truth. Jesus said, when praying to the Father, your word is truth. We do not uh, agree or believe that all truths or all opinions are equal. That is a very common uh, kind of way of thinking that as Bible-believing Christians, we say, no, we don't believe that is the case. There is an objective, absolute truth revealed through Scripture. It's what God has said. That is the truth. That has the last word very important that we define that and articulate that clearly. Why is it so important? Here's why. Jesus says, if you abide in my word, if you remain in my words, then you'll know the truth and the truth will set you free. And we live in a world of slavery where there's so much people are slavery to so many kinds of different sins and besetting habits. Jesus said, when you get the truth, when you understand it and really take it into the heart of your being, it will set you free. And so Jesus is about freedom. God is about freedom. The church is about freedom. It's about freedom from slavery to sin. Why? So that we can live for him, which is true freedom. So that we can use our freedom to serve one another, which is true freedom. It's what we're made for. Faith honours God's truth over all of the five senses. It's not a denial of what is before us, but it understands that circumstances, situations, fashions, worldviews, they come and go, they shift like the sand. What God says remains the same. 
So it's an honouring of the eternal nature of God and his truth. It honours God. Rather than just taking on different worldviews and fashions and trends that come and go and, and people profess so boldly. But in a few years' time, that will be gone and it will be a new one because it's just a scraping around trying to find answers, doing all we can to find some kind of meaning and truth without submitting to him. It's the essence of sin, really. We get set free to walk in a reality defined by God. Sometimes it's dramatic, like a Red Sea opening. Other times it's not so dramatic. Like there was a story once where Elijah the prophet, he is in the middle of a drought and he, he, he sees this woman picking up sticks and says, uh, do you know what? Uh, you couldn't cook us a loaf of bread, could you? He says, he says, I'd love to, but we've got enough left for one loaf. And me and my son, we're collecting sticks now to make a fire so we can bake it up and eat it and then die. Well, how does Elijah respond to that? He says, if you could do me a loaf first, that would be great. Think, doesn't this guy care? Is there no regard for the circumstances here? Well, you've got to understand in the Old Testament, the prophet represents the presence of God, the voice of God. And so she acts in faith. She bakes him a cake or a loaf of bread. What happens is this, is that her little bit of oil and flour does not run out until the drought finishes. You see, no one else would have known about it. It's a little private thing, really. But it's a mighty act of faith and a bold reliance on God. Now, this explains why it often leads to vehement opposition. So they want to look at the inevitability and nature of opposition to the life of faith and how we're to respond. We'll look at that through the story of David and Goliath. I'm not going to read the whole story to you, to you again um, because it's a very, very long story. And I did that last week. Um, but I want to first explain, I'll give you a brief kind of, here's where we're at. And then we'll read some, some of it that will help us today. So the situation is this. The people of Israel are lined up in battle array against the Philistines. Um, At this particular moment in history, God has promised the Israelites this land, and so the Philistines' presence there is in defiance of God's promise, in defiance of God's word. And so there's a faith battle going on here, really. Um, King Saul, who leads the Israelites at this point, he has lost the anointing, the power of the Holy Spirit. He's on a downward spiral into a chaotic life of self-pity, murderous revenge, and uncontrollable anger. Um, Maybe there's someone here like that today. You feel like you're in that kind of downward spiral. You're in the right place. Jesus can turn that around. King Saul is in, he's in that kind That's what's going on. And uh, he's naturally an impressive man physically. He stands head and shoulders physically among every other Israelite uh, and every other soldier in his army. But suddenly this man called Goliath comes along from the Philistines. He's about nine and a half foot. Um, and it's just suddenly it's, it's all looking really bad. And Goliath's basically saying this, look, why don't you just bring out one of your guys and we'll fight one on one. And whoever wins, they win the war. And everyone's like, oh, mate, you know, maybe we should sort of stand two guys on one on another shoulder and put a big cloak over him, but I don't know what we're going to do. But basically, no one wants to fight the guy. They're all hiding in, hiding in their sort of trenches, cowering. And then suddenly David enters the scene. And Dave, David's mere presence, the whole atmosphere changes. It's suddenly the atmosphere is charged with God's presence. Why? Because David is totally different from Saul and the Israelites, whose eyes are merely on the natural. David gets God. He gets that God is faithful to his promise. He gets that God is able to promise what he's performed. He gets that God is mighty, impressive. Here's a man who is intoxicated 
intoxicated with the glory, the centrality, the supremacy of the Lord. And as he comes onto the scene, everything changes. And David's like, well, who's this uncircumcised Philistine? Why is is no one fighting him? And so we're going to kind of pick it up. Um, David's been been asking people what's going on. Why is no one fighting him? And and word's getting around that there's there's some kind of adolescent on the scene who's wanting to take on the giant. Okay, So we're going to pick up in 1 Samuel chapter 17 uh, and verse... 24. So I've just realized that some of the verses I'm going to read, I've just kind of narrated to you already, but I'm sure you can live with that. Um, verse 24. All the men of Israel, when they saw the, the man as Goliath, fled from him and were much afraid. And the men of Israel said, have you seen this man who's come up? Surely he's come up to defy Israel. And the king will enrich the man who kills him with great riches and will give him his daughter and make his father's house free. That's free from taxes in Israel. And David said to the men who stood by him, What shall be done for the man who kills this Philistine and takes away the reproach from Israel? Who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? And the people answered him in the same way. So shall it be done to the man who kills him. Now... Stage number one in opposition. Now Eliab, his eldest brother, heard when David spoke to the men. This is David's oldest brother. And Eliab's anger was kindled against David. And he said, why have you come down? And with whom have you left those few sheep in the wilderness? I know your presumption and the evil of your heart. You've come down to see the battle. And David said, what have I done now? Wasn't it but a word? And he turned away from him towards another and spoke in the same way. And the people answered him again as before. Okay, we're going to just stop there. Look at first stage of opposition. Then we'll carry on reading a little bit later. So the first stage of opposition is a double whammy. Why? It comes, not, it comes, it comes from his own flesh and blood. Ouch. And his very motives are questioned. Double ouch. This is the opposition that questions motives. Why have you come down? Why are you here? And he says, I know the presumption and the evil in your heart. It's interesting, isn't it, that David's faith to Eliab looks like presumption. Faith can look like presumption. And it can wind people up. Why? Because when someone is uncertain, and then someone comes along who's genuinely certain, it highlights and exposes the uncertainty in the uncertain person's heart and they suddenly feel very defensive. So what do you do at that point? You go on attack. It's exactly what's happening. Eliab's in the army. He's the older brother. He's been carrying and shaking with the rest of the Israelites. Suddenly his younger brother, number eight, comes along and starts saying, well, I'll take him on. <laughs> Eliab is suddenly very aware of the fact that he is in unbelief that he really does not have by any means the same confidence in God that David has. He's envious, I would imagine. And so he attacks him with this, you're presumptuous and you are evil. And I want to look at this, how we deal with it when our motives are questioned. Um, I want to ask a question. Are our motives ever 100% pure? You see, here's the tricky thing. You can be doing something for God, and someone questions your motives, and what happens is you go, oh, flip, maybe they're right. Am I right? Yeah? Because you suddenly think, do you know what? But I want to just encourage you with a few truths from Scripture here, because I think it's going to be very, very helpful. Um, David seems quite interested in some of the benefits in killing Goliath. Have you noticed that? He's there for the glory of God, but he says, hold on a minute, what's going to happen? I get to marry a princess. 
tell me that? Did I hear right? Oh, I really want to kill this giant. (laughs) Now, here's a man of God, been filled with the Spirit, coming to serve the Lord, but there is within him a very natural sense of, do you know what? There's some bonuses here. There's some bonuses. Now, at this point, when Eliab says, I know what you're about, it's interesting, isn't it? What does David do? We're told that he, first of all, says, he defends himself. What have I done now? Then he turns away. There's a dismissiveness. And then he asks again. That's a godly response to opposition when you're in faith. Even if you are aware that your motives are not perfect, but that the driving force behind what you're doing is the glory of God, you can stand on that. I see so many believers who get so crippled by this whole question of their motives. So often. I know many of you here, you'd love to just, even in a setting like this, among mostly Christians, you'd love to pray out. But you get into, the, into this complex, bizarre labyrinth of, well, why do I really want to pray out? <laughs> Is it because I want to impress that person there because I fancy her? Hmm. <laughs> Before you know it, the worship time's over. And you just, you didn't, you, you've just been so complicated. Yeah, it's just, I, I mean, I see it so often. Oh, I'd love to prophesy, but you know what? Uh, it, it might just be me. It's, not, it's probably not just you, because the last thing you want to do is prophesy. In fact, as soon as you got a prophecy, you thought, oh no. Because <laughs> you, like, you don't like making your voice heard, all right? So, so it's probably not just you, is it? Unless you've got some serious multiple personality going on. Okay? It's not you. It's the Lord. Okay? So, but you, know, you missed the opportunity. Why? Because you well, I've always, I've always been terrible. Uh, you know, I've always been mostly terrible. And so I'm probably it's just terrible. I can't bring it. And you just got into this thing. Listen. David is interested in getting his father let off for some taxes. He's interested in marrying a princess. And whatever the other thing was. He's interested in it. Okay? His main driving force is what though? The glory of God. Now, when his brother comes in with this accusation, he doesn't just buckle under the fact he's not perfect. He's dismissive of it. Why? Because he recognises that if he comes under it, he's going to get into paralysis and the victory won't be won. Big. Very, very big. We must learn from this story. So many believers I know are crippled by the opinions of others. Crippled. I was speaking at a Christian Union once in Canterbury, and I was talking on various things, trying to sound clever because it was a uni. Um, and uh, you do when you're not been to uni, and you go, you just you act all silly. You don't know what to do with yourself. So um, I wore a mortarboard and everything. No, I didn't. I didn't. No. So, so I'm in there, and I'm I'm doing the thing, uh, and then a question comes up, and there's been there's been this panel of of people who, who I would have assumed ethnically. I thought would you know. I think they would have come from what we describe as the Islamic world. Um, but they've seemed to have been fairly kind of peaceful up till now about things. Someone asked a question about other, other faiths and stuff like this. And I, I come in with a very straight, Jesus is the way. You know, at that point, these guys just kind of, you know, they rear up big time at me. Because they're kind of from an Islamic background. But they're really into, we, we, we're into the monotheistic faith. So we're into Christianity, Judah, and Islam. And they're kind of a, a, they're kind of a gang, you know. And we're kind of, we're with that. So Jesus being the only way. And they, and they, and they weren't happy at all. And publicly, you know, and so publicly I just kind of, you know, graciously, gently, but just sort of came back and we debated for a while. At the end of it, a young Christian man came up to me and he said, he said, he said I don't know how you did that. If, if, if people had said that to me, I would have just, oh, something like, I would have just died, I would have just fallen apart. And I thought, no. 
No, no, no. It's not okay to be like that. That, that, what that. What that demonstrates is that in your foundations there is this idolatry. You are, at, you are just overly concerned with the pleasure and favour of people. Now, I didn't say that. It wasn't the moment. But I thought to myself, oh man. And I think he kind of felt like he was the normal one and I was the superhero. And I'm like, no, surely, surely... We believe the scripture. What does Paul say? Galatians 1.10. If I was still trying to please man, I wouldn't be a servant of Christ. You, you, you can't just twin track that and be a believer. You can't do it. And I was, I was, I, I, that was like eight years ago. It lives with me. Because I think we've got to, by the grace of God, by the power of the Spirit, see that rooted out. And replaced by just a longing for the smile of Jesus. Because it must be replaced, but you can't just root it out. You've got to know something only Jesus can replace where there's been idolatry. And just, just that sense of, I'm living for his pleasure. It's so, so important for us. So David's confidence remains intact after attack number one. And that means victory is still in reach. Here's why. 1 John 5, 4 says this. Everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Okay? He's still in faith. He's still pressing forward. He's not been, um, he's not been knocked off. By it. So now we're going to move on to um, stage two. Let's read from verse 31. When the words that David spoke were heard, they repeated them before Saul and he sent for him. And David said to Saul, let no man's heart fail because of him. Your servant will go and fight with this Philistine. And Saul the king said to David, you are not able to go against this Philistine to fight with him. For you're but a youth. He's been a man of war since he was a youth. But David said to Saul, your servant used to keep sheep for his father. And when there came a lion or a bear, took a lamb from the flock. I went after him, struck him, delivered it out of his mouth. And if he arose against me, I caught him by his beard and struck him and killed him. Your servant struck down both lions and bears. And this uncircumcised Philistine, he, he shall be like one of them. For he's defied the armies of the living God. And David said, the Lord who delivered me from the poor of the lion, from the poor of the bear, will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. And Saul said to David, go and the Lord be with you. So he's overcome the obstacle of motives being challenged. Next comes his plain old-fashioned ability. Saul says, you can't do it. You are not able. It's simply too much for you. You're about 14. You weigh about nine stone. Look at him. It's just, it's not happening. Has God promised something to you? And the voice of people rings in your ears and it says this. You're not able. You can't do that. Let's look at how David responds. It's very important, you see, because the human assessment, it can shape us, can't it? Especially from an authority figure, they'd have thought, well, he's the king. I mean, who would have blamed David if he'd got this far and then sorted that and he'd gone, he's the king. Fair play. And just gone. I mean, no one would have blamed him. I wouldn't have blamed him. But he doesn't respond like that. Something deeper is going on here. Maybe you're here and you're the person who's been shaped. You, know, you might say, you know what, I feel my whole life has been shaped by people in authority saying, you're not able. Let me just say to you, hope is not lost. Hope is not lost. Your, de- your destiny is not determined by what any mortal has said to you. There is a word that comes with far more authority. There is a word that comes with far more reach and power. It's the word of God. And he says some very amazing things. So let's just have a look at this for a moment, shall we? This could have been life-defining for David. This could have been self-pity-inducing for David. This could have been character-shaping for David. What does David do? He considers it, and then he challenges it. 
He said, I want to just come back for a minute. I've got some thoughts on this. And uh, he ba- how so? He's been brought into a new order of thinking by the Holy Spirit and he declares it. He says, you know what, my mind's been renewed from all that way. I get what you're saying, Saul. I, I can understand what you're saying now. I get it. Okay, it's like Abraham. I get I'm a hundred. I get Sarah kind of children. Okay, David says, yeah, I get it. I'm nine stone. He's nine feet. I, I get it. But I want to challenge it. And what he does is he then rehearses the way up till this point God has been faithful. This is a huge key to faith. You find it littered throughout the whole scripture, particularly the Psalms. They're constantly looking back, harking back. But God, you did this. You delivered us from the Egyptians. You threw them into the sea. When we cried out to you, you saved us. Constantly, again and again. Why? Well, it's not just for gratitude and praise, although that's part of it. It is, this, it is the springboard to future victory and future faith. You fight with where, what God has done with you. Okay? So, so you know, maybe you're going through a dark season. And you feel like, do you know what? I'm in a place of, it feels dark. It's a dark night of the soul. And you feel, maybe it feels a bit like I'm on teetering on the edge of all hope being lost or whatever. Let me, let me just ask, has the Lord done any amazing things in your life up till this point? If you're a believer, you can say yes. Let me just say to you, what he has started, he will complete. He is faithful even when we are faithless. Even when we're grasping around for something to try and cling to, he is faithful. He carries us by spirit. Spirit, he will remind us of scriptural truth. He'll remind us of the things that he's done. The Bible says he will fill our hearts with songs of deliverance. Allow him to do that. That you might begin to challenge what is simply before you in the natural. Take up your weapons and say, hold on a minute. I know what you're saying and I know that it makes sense. But God... But lines used to come and I just I used to do it. The line was scarier than this one. You take the history and you use it as a springboard into what you are facing in the current moment. David's mentality is this. All this happened up till now has been preparation. That is the mentality to have. So he passes stage two. Ability. Stage three. Let's pick it up from verse 38. The final stage. Then Saul clothed David with his armour, he put a helmet of bronze on his head and clothed him with a coat of mail and David strapped his sword over his armour and he tried in vain to go for he had not tested them. Then David said to Saul, I can't go with these, I've not tested them. So David put them off. He took his staff in his hand, chose five smooth stones from the brook, put them in his shepherd's pouch, his sling was in his hand and he approached the Philistine. And the Philistine moved forward and came near to David with his shield bearer in front of him. And when the Philistine looked and saw David, he disdained him. For he was but a youth, ruddy and handsome in appearance. And the Philistine said to David, am I a dog? You come to me with a sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. The Philistine said to David, come to me. I'll give your flesh to the birds of the air and the beasts of the field. Then David said to the Philistine, you come to me with a sword and with a spear and with a javelin. I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day, the Lord will deliver you into my hand and I will strike you down and I will cut off your head and I will give the dead bodies of the host of the Philistines this day to the birds of the air and to the wild beasts of the earth that all the earth may know there's a God in Israel and that all this assembly may know the Lord saves not with sword and spear for the bowels of the Lord's and he will give you into our hand then the Philistine arose when the Philistine arose and came and drew near to meet David David ran quickly toward the battle line to meet the Philistine and David put his hand in his bag took out a stone and slung it and struck the Philistine on his forehead the stone, the stone sank into his forehead and he fell on his face to the ground so David prevailed over the Philistine with a sling and with a stone and struck the Philistine and killed him 
Stage number three of opposition, outright intimidation. <laughs> At this point, the gloves are off. Satan is afraid because victory is very, very close now. David has overcome the motivation challenge, the ability challenge, and every time his answer is the same, for the glory of God, for the glory of God. And now he hits outright intimidation here. This is a frightening moment in many ways. And uh, it's so vital that when, when you get here, that you don't, do not move. That you just do not move. Notice that Goliath's form of intimidation, it takes on the form of a prediction. I will give your flesh to the birds of the air. Basically what's happening is this. It's a false prophecy. It's like if you carry on in the course you've chosen, you are dead meat. Satan's speciality. If you carry on in your conviction and in your outright going for God, you are done for. You are over. One way or another. He'll use whatever he knows will work in you because he studies us and knows our weak spots. If you carry on like this, do you know what? They're going to reject you. Everything you've built up. What does David do? He prophesies a different future. It's amazing. He's running at Goliath, and Goliath's prophesying of him. You are dead meat. I'm going to give you a flesh to the birth. And David just says, you know what? That's not the case. I'm going to do you, and then all that army behind you, I'm going to feed them to the birds of the air. He's Larry, isn't he? What's going on there? David knows the promises of God. This is our land. God has promised it to us. You need to go. Because God has said. God's promised. And so he prophesies out of what God has promised. And it can look presumptuous to some. They're looking on thinking, how can he be that confident? David says, well, God said... And when he said something, it's not like he said it. He said it when well, he was ra- he was having a, you know he's been a bit rash. You know, he said it, but it's one of those moments. You know, when you say something and you think, oh, why did I say that? It's one of the- come on. He's not like us. He's not like us. He never says anything rashly. He never says anything with only you know. You say something sometimes, and you realize, oh no, I only have fifty percent of the information. Now I've said it. I've realized the whole story. What I've done. Yeah. He doesn't have that. He understands the whole picture when he says something. He gets it. When he says something, he's got every angle, every possible outcome, and he speaks it so you can rest your life on it and declare it and speak it out. There is this declaration. He shouts down demonic intimidation by a God-intoxicated view of the future. He understands the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord like the waters cover the sea. He begins to announce it so you will understand there is a mighty God in Israel, and he's a God who fights for us, and this is how you do it. Christians, this is how you do it. When those thoughts come in that threaten to you to just back off and shrink back and lose your confidence, at that point, what has God said? I'm going to take it, I'm going to declare it, I'm going to speak it out, I'm going to pray it in, and I'm going to keep running forward. It's very important that we do that. It's very, very important. Jesus went through exactly the same kind of opposition. Exactly. You look in the scriptures, it's very, very interesting. Very interesting. I don't, how, how did Jesus know he was the son of God? We don't know, do we? 
But I wonder, how did he know he was the Messiah? I'm sure there was all kinds of things going on. I'm sure there was just this, you know, just kind of direct revelation from his walk with the Father. I'm sure you know, the Old Testament scriptures, I'm sure things that, you know, his mum Mary would tell him about these, these, these kings rocked up, you know, and I think you probably don't remember it, but they brought these gifts. They said, they used to want to start worshipping you. You know, uh, Simon and Anna in the temple, they were prophesying. And I'm sure there's a mixture of stuff he's, he's putting, I don't know how. But it's interesting, isn't it, that Satan challenges it. If you're the son of God, yeah? If you're the son of God. What he's trying to do is get Jesus to say, oh man, why am I? Do that. Prove, prove it. And his, his identity and his mission is constantly being challenged. Dave, um, Jesus himself was opposed by his family at one point. Listen to this story here. Jesus went home and the crowd gathered again so they couldn't even eat, right? So they're just doing ministry, healing the sick and stuff so much so they can't even eat dinner, right? <laughs> it's so real, it's so human. Listen, when his family heard it, they went out to seize him. But they were saying, he's lost it. He's, he's, got, you know, he's gone too far now. He's out of his mind. And then the scribes who came down from Jerusalem are saying, he's possessed by the devil. <laughs> by the prince of demons, he casts out demons. And so what does Jesus do? I'm sorry, guys. Yeah, I went over the top that time. No, come on. What does Jesus do? <laughs> Look at his boldness. Look at his confidence. It says this. He called them to him. He's hearing it. You're possessed by the devil. Oh, no. Come to me. He says this. Listen. How can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom's divided against itself, that house, the kingdom cannot stand. If a house is divided against itself, the house will not be able to stand. If Satan's risen up and is against himself and he's divided, he cannot stand. He's coming to an end. So he dealt with them. And then his mothers and brothers came. And standing outside, they sent to him and called him, Jesus! So he's a house, huge crowd, and they can't get in. Jesus! Go. And they send someone, go and get him. Go and get him. It's too much now. It's gone. Right. And the crowd was sitting around him, and they said to him, oh, Jesus, your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. And he answered them, Who's my mother and brothers? And looking about at those who sat around him, he said, Here's my mother and brothers. Whoever does the will of God, he's my brother my sister, and my mother. How would they have felt out there? There comes a point and a moment where you have to throw off everything that will hinder you doing the thing that God has called you to do. Absolute, radical, I'm not going to give way to that. And if I'm misunderstood, so be it. I'm not here to be the same and to fit in. I'm here to glorify Jesus. It's ever so important. It's ever so important that we are clear on this. (coughs) Poor old Peter, eh? Let's listen to what happened to Peter. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And then Peter took him aside. It's embarrassing, isn't it? Peter took him aside, Jesus. <laughs> began to rebuke the creator of heavens and earth. You know, began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord. This shall never happen to you. <laughs> he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. Oh, ouch. You are a hindrance to me. For you're not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of men. I mean, you know, 
put yourself in Peter's shoes, man. He's only trying to be nice. <laughs> and you're reeling, aren't you? You're reeling, aren't you? He called me Satan. He called me the rock ten minutes ago. <laughs> now I'm Satan. <laughs> What's happening here? Jesus says, I'm going to the cross. It terrifies me. But I must get to the cross. Because at the cross, I'm going to bear the sins of the whole world in my body so that the wickedest, vilest, most degraded person on earth can be forgiven, renewed, redeemed, restored and reconciled to God and have brand new life. I'm going to get there. No one and nothing will stop me. I'm sorry if I've hurt your feelings, Peter, but for the sake of lives in the world, now in this time, in 21st century London, I'm going to the cross. That is our hope. We declare the crucified Jesus. This is not some sort of setup where you come along and try and be a nice person and try and show how religious you are. If that's what you're about, that is not what we're about. We're about those who say, do you know what? Our only hope is this. Jesus Christ, him crucified and risen again on our behalf. He is our only plea, our only claim. He is the name we boast in and rejoice in. It's all about him. Okay? That's the message. Look at the way Jesus deals with anything that's going to get in his way. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Sound like a horse then, right? One final one where the gloves are off and Jesus is being accused. Just after he's been arrested, they say this. The chief priests the whole council were seeking testimony against Jesus to put him to death. But they found none. Many bore false witness against him, but their testimony did not agree. And some stood up and bore false witness against him, saying, We heard him say, I'll destroy this temple that's made with hands, and in three days I'll build another, not made with hands. Yet even their testimony didn't agree. And the high priest stood up in the midst and asked Jesus, Have you no answer to make? What is it these men testify against you? He remained silent and gave no answer. Again, the high priest asked him, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? At this point, Jesus affirms yes and predicts, prophesies a proper future. He said, I am, and you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power, coming with the clouds of heaven. I tell you, Jesus is the Son of the Blessed, and you will see him, we all will see him, seated at the right hand of power, the right hand of the Father, and coming with the clouds of heaven. He will return to take his people to be with him. I want to urge you to side with Jesus today. He is all glorious, all good, all powerful, all loving, and he passed through every challenge of opposition to be able to win a people to himself. And so I want to finish now by simply applying this to us and how we deal with opposition. Because of Jesus' faith, we have new life. Amen? Amen. But Jesus said this, as the Father sent me, I'm sending you. I hear that. He said, as the Father sent me, I am sending you. Faith in God does not mean believing for a smooth life. Get that out of your head. It's not going to help you. Because <laughs> if, you, if that's in your head, when it doesn't get smooth, you're going to just drop or falter or lose steam. Okay? That's not the promise. There are some really good promises though, like this. John 15, abide in me and you'll bear much fruit. Hallelujah. Matthew 28. Make disciples of all nations. Surely he will give us success as we do that. 
Matthew 7, ask and it shall be given. John 15, abide in me and ask for whatever you wish and it will be done for you. Ephesians 5, be filled with the Holy Spirit. John 10, my sheep recognize my voice. Acts 17, God has ordained where you live and where you work. Ephesians 1, resurrection powers at work in you. Mark 16, you have authority over darkness. I want to encourage you as a church, fasten yourselves to what God says about you. Fasten yourselves to it with cable that is so thick that nothing can get through it. Okay, And when you've fastened yourself to it, fasten yourself with another cable. And cling to him, his truth and his promise so tightly that you will push through everything that comes your way. We are called here on a mission. We are called here to proclaim Jesus Christ to those whom God puts in our lives. We must do so with boldness and confidence. We had a leader today yesterday. And we were ch- challenging one another on evangelism. I was so challenged and so stirred. I went out to pray last night. And a beautiful thing happened. I, I was out praying. And as I'm praying, I suddenly felt, you know what? God, I've, got to, I've just got to, I've got to witness. I've got to tell something about Jesus. I've just got to do it. Because I felt rusty. And I felt I'd come under this fear of man thing. I felt I'd come under this esteeming people and what, they, what face they might pull if I mentioned Jesus. And I thought, I've got to break free from that somehow. And I know that praying is part of it. And acting is another part of it, right? It's Prayer and action. So I said, God, I said, okay, God, I just I need to speak to some people. And so I'm just walking round and round, Queen's Crescent, just round this big old block here, just praying and, and saying, God, come on. And then uh, realising that, you know, there's a little bit of desperation in my prayer, but not enough faith. So I start thinking, I thank you, God, you've empowered me by the Spirit to speak about you. I thank you, God, you've given me what I need to do this. And then as I'm walking around the block, I just felt the Holy Spirit's leading. Is there any way I can describe it? I mean, you know, hearing the voice of God is like catching butterflies, right? I mean, you know, it's kind of, well, you know. But I thought, I think God's telling me to walk through that really dark alleyway there in that estate. <laughs> Great. Uh, <laughs> it wasn't me, right? So, uh, I thought, fair play, I'll go through. And then up a slope, up a slope, and then I heard the voices of young men, and my heart starts going, and I thought, this is it. So I approached three young guys and said, uh, God, has anyone ever spoke to you about, about forgiveness through Jesus Christ? I didn't know how else to start it, to be honest with you. I mean, I just thought I'd go in and see what God does. And one of them started talking a little bit, and then he went off, and I was after these two guys. We spoke for two hours. We spoke for two glorious hours. And at one point, one point in the conversation, I was able to tell them why I came and spoke to them, that I felt the Holy Spirit led me. And then later in the conversation that came out, something that proved to just be so remarkable for them, particularly for one of them. Both of them had lived in, as, and growing up, had lived in women's aid refuges. Refuges where, you know, um, battered wives live. Uh, I've lived in three growing up. And so to be able to bring my testimony and they were both looked at each other, because they were at school together, they didn't really know each other well, but only got to know each other when they came out of school. And a real connection for them is we've both lived in that world. Suddenly, God, God leads me into a situation with this testimony. And they were just like... And later on, I spoke to them, you know, should I pray for something for you? I mean, is there something like, you know... Because someone said, why don't miracles happen there? I said, but they do, let me pray. And the other one just said, you know what? The fact that God led you here and that's been your story, that's miracle enough for me. Just amazing. So it's really great. So I came home uh, and I was just up this morning just praying for him and that. And I just felt, I just felt drop into my, my heart, my spirit. Just that, this just kind of sentence, which is just like, um, those are the kinds of conversations which, which begin salvation. And you think, it, it just, it doesn't take much. It doesn't take money. It doesn't take fancy, impressive stuff. But it does take something happening whereby inside you say, God, I'm not willing to live under intimidation, fear of man and those things anymore because people need to hear about you. 
And they need to hear the truth. I mean, I was very, very straight. The man told me he was a good soul. I said, you're a rotten sinner. I told him really straight. But I told him I was as well. It's got to be the truth. I didn't tell him about church. I didn't tell him about God. I told him about Jesus. You should say, God, it means anything to people. Church never changed anyone's life. Jesus saves. And I want to just end today by reading your scripture from Romans 10 that we might meditate on it together. If you have a Bible with you, please turn to Romans 10. We're going to go from verse 13. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord, that's the Lord Jesus, will be saved. Everyone. Maybe you're here today and you're not saved. Call on his name for salvation, for forgiveness. You will be saved. But how are they to call on him in whom they've not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they've never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they've been sent? Jesus says, as the Father sent me, I've sent you. And I want to end on this. As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. And when you're around people that don't know the Lord Jesus and you want to tell them, and that thing starts happening in your head, where you start thinking it's just the worst thing to say, and it's just going to make it all go wrong, and this, that, and the other, you remember this, please, by the authority of God. As you go and do that, you are beautiful. You are bringing the beautiful news. Your feet are beautiful. And the Bible says that we are the aroma of Christ. To some it smells like life, to some it smells like death. In your workplace, it may be rampant with unbelief. It may be that all but one. When you speak of Jesus and live like Jesus, the aroma is death. But to one, the aroma is life. Do you know what? It might be all but one. The aroma is life. You just don't know. So don't presume God. Let's believe him. Let's believe his promise. And let's go to him for help. And then let's believe he's going to give us that help and he's given us that help. And then let's let him direct our steps in faith and with the peace that he brings. Amen? Do you pray? Let's pray. Father, we want to thank you for your word, the Bible. We thank you for where the Apostle Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5 verse 9, whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please him. And Lord, we just say there's nothing that compares with knowing your pleasure. And we thank you, Lord, we haven't got to do loads of amazing things to please you, but if we believe you, if we believe you, And quit listening to the lies and the unbelief. And shout that down with some truth. I thank you that there's celebrations in heaven. I thank you that you quickly come to our aid. I thank you, Lord, that that you love to do that in us. And so, Father, I want to pray for us as a church. I pray for the obedience of faith. Not the obedience of law. We do it because we have to. The obedience of faith, we do it because we get to. We do it because we're excited about what God's going to do. We do it because we believe God's got a great harvest. We do it because we love those that we are reaching out to. I pray for the obedience of faith 
to be a mark of us as a church. I pray, Lord God, our confidence would grow and grow. We would not give way in prayer. We would not give way in faith. We would not give way in lifestyle. I pray, Jesus, help us to make our boast in you wherever we are that we would speak your name. Help us. We recognise such a spiritual battle in doing so. We recognise so many fears jump into our minds, all of us. It's all the same. It's not that it is like that for some and not for others. It's the same for all of us. But we thank you. Greater is he that is in us than he that is in the world. And I pray, oh God, such a depth of working and impressedness with you to be wrought in us, even through this series and through other things that we read and just we spend time with you, that we would find just an aroma of you coming up more and more clearly and a view of you being formed more and more beautifully in in the spirit of our mind where we see you more and more clearly as we believe your word. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. 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 We're going to take the bread and the wine now um, because Jesus told us to do that, to remember his death for us, that his body was broken on that cross and that his blood was shed so we might be forgiven. Some of you are here that maybe don't know the Lord Jesus. I want to encourage you to give your heart to Jesus, to call on his name and then to come and enjoy taking the bread and the wine as a way of saying, Jesus, I'm going to follow you now. If you do that, we'd love to be able to talk with you and pray with you after. So please come and find me or someone who brought you and just say, yeah, I did that and you know, I want to, I want to follow Jesus. Those of us who know and love the Lord, let's take the bread and wine worthily. Let's take it with reverence. Let's take it in community. You want to go out with someone and pray together. Let's, just, let's encounter God in this last 20 minutes or so as we praise him with song. Let's let the spirit, spiritual gifts flow. Amen. Stir up the gift of God within you. Okay, stir it up. Let it flow. And let's enjoy the presence of Jesus. Shall we stand?